Good evening. Welcome. <clears throat> uh, tonight I'm I'm planning to talk about uh, Dogen's uh, Zen Master Dogen's instructions to the cook. Um, you know, primarily. Um, but uh, while I was thinking about tonight's talk, I was remembering when I was at Spirit Rock uh, for the Buddhist Teachers Conference a few years ago. And um, they had uh, set up little so-called home groups, you know, home groups, so that you could meet some of the other teachers and then once or twice a day you met with your home group so you could sort of check in with each other. I was in a home group. Uh, to my right was Joseph Goldstein. <laughs> to my left was Shinzen Young. And then across the circle from us was Gaelic Rinpoche, uh, Sogyal Rinpoche, and Zogni Rinpoche. <laughs> so we all introduced ourselves. <clears throat> and then um, Zogni Rinpoche looked across the circle to me and he said, So, Ed, what is the difference between you and Joseph? He meant, you know, like the difference between Zen and Vipassana. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I said, well, our hair is shorter than theirs, and we have little outfits, and, and they don't. And uh, Zogner Rinpoche said, no, Ed, I'm serious. <laughs> And I'm still, of course, wishing that at that point I said, and that's the difference between you and me. <laughs> but I'm afraid I, you know, I missed my chance, and I kind of like, uh-oh, <laughs> he's serious. <sighs> anyway. <clears throat> um, but, you know, one of the other big differences, of course, between Zen and Vipassana is that um, we give you an assigned seat, and if you're not in it, we come looking for you. <laughs> and in Vipassana, who cares? <laughs> so you can, you know, if you've been practicing Zen, then you feel like when you do Vipassana, you've, you, you, you know, you're no longer going to be harassed by the Zen police. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, somebody is going to kind of, somebody notices, somebody cares, they come and say, are you okay? So are you all right? You know, do you need anything to eat? Or do you, you know, want us to bring you food? And in Vipassana retreats, you're kind of on your own, figure it out, or, you know, get your roommate or somebody to do something for you, you know, so. And then another, um, I mean, I suppose there's real differences, you know, but... But another one, um, you know, we sit until somebody hits the bell. And if they don't hit the bell, you just keep sitting. <laughs> and uh, when I did a retreat at IMS, there was one time in the three months where the bell ringer was doing, you know, went, was out having an interview, a teacher's interview, an you know, interview with their teacher. 
So the end of the period came and people just got up and it's time to go. <laughs> so in Vipassana, everybody knows like when the period's over and you just like, we're adults, we, you know, we can figure out what time is. We don't need to wait for any bell. <laughs> so we have anyway more the feeling of um, let's just head for the cliff and keep going. <laughs> you know, and uh, Vipassana is very sweet and polite. <clears throat> you might want to take a vow of not moving. Some people sometimes have found this very valuable and important for them and you might want to consider this very carefully and see if you might take a vow of not moving for a period or a day or you know. <laughs> we just say don't move <laughs> or actually now I tell people at my retreats I say you can move if you want to and then nobody does it's funny but anyway <clears throat> well I've been um, uh, studying Dogen's instructions to the cook for oh my goodness Forty years now. <laughs> um, you know, cooking uh, and food is so much a part of our life, our lives, and it's been, uh, of course, strange to see over the last forty years how um, you know eating practices have changed. So many more fast food restaurants and. Uh, so many more opportunities to, um, you know, buy food that's already prepared, uh, you know, so you don't have to cook. Uh, because uh, the American idea, you know, our culture's idea of uh, happiness is never having to relate to anything. <laughs> Because if you actually were to relate to something, who knows what would happen? <laughs> and, and you're not in charge anymore. Wouldn't it just be nice if everything did what it was supposed to, and you didn't have to say anything to it or ask anything of it, and it just, just performs for you, you know? So it's, um, it's like when you go into the grocery store and the packages are sitting there on the shelf. And there, you know, people have done studies. What colors are going to attract your attention and grab your interest, grab your attention. You know, they're not going to wait for you to give your attention. They're going to grab it. And so the packages are sitting there, you know, and they're all saying, you know, the same thing. They have a little mantra, you know, <laughs> buy me. By me, by me, by me, by me, by me. <laughs> and then um, <clears throat> sometimes you do, you put it in your cart, but sometimes you might say, well, why? <laughs> and then, of course, they explain, I'm quick, I'm easy, and you won't have to relate to me at all. You know, put me in the oven or the microwave, set the timer, and I will be there for you just the way you want me to. <laughs> just the way I always have. You know, the universe is repeatable. You can have things just the way you... And, you know, have it your way. <laughs> 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 and, uh, 
And, you know, I'll be there just like you'd like me to. And there will be no surprises. You won't actually have to taste me. <laughs> there will be no objectionable flavors. There'll be no particularly interesting flavors either, but, you know, there'll be no surprises. You know, this will be comfortable for you. When you eat me, you won't have to experience anything. <laughs> and this is America, and this is happiness. <laughs> Not to actually experience anything. Because if you experience something, it might be unpleasant. <laughs> and we wouldn't want that. <laughs> so you're already, you know, on a kind of, you know, to come to a meditation center, you're on this sort of cutting edge of, huh, I think I'd like to have a life. <laughs> and be able to experience things and experience pleasant and unpleasant and sweet, sour, salty, bitter, pungent. You know, have a range of flavors in my life, a range of tastes, a range of experience. Um, and to be able to actually, um, you know, be in relationship or connection with the world and with myself, with others, you know, with the world. And um, so that's already a kind of, you know, these days, revolutionary step. <laughs> it doesn't sort of seem that way so much, but it's, um, it's uh, against the current of our culture, you know, the predominant culture. <clears throat> uh, Zen Master Dogen, who lived in the 13th century, uh, once said, um, if you want things to be easy, uh, you will never find things to be easy enough. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> and he also said, um, you know, you have a lot of uh, strategies and plans and um, maneuvers that you're prepared to take so that life is the way you want it to be. Has it worked? You've had these same strategies, plans, and maneuverings for all your life now, and how long has it been? 30, 40, 60 years? And don't you think it would have worked by now if it was going to work? <laughs> So he said, give it a rest. You know, let go of your strategies and plans and maneuverings to have things come out just the way you want them to. You know, like the rice-a-roni. I'll be there for you just the way you want me to. You won't have to taste anything. I will taste exactly like you think I will. <laughs> and of course, you know, you can always watch a TV show. It's not 
you know, you won't actually have to experience anything. You can have the illusion of experiencing something. <laughs> but you don't actually have to talk to anybody or say yes or no or, you know, anything. And then if you're a little dismayed, you just change the channel. <laughs> you know, bored, <laughs> something. Oh, let's, let's watch another one. <laughs> so this is um, interesting. Uh, so Dogen's, um, so I started uh, cooking uh, when I was about 20, and uh, I enjoyed it very much. And part of what I enjoyed right away was, um, you know, the colors and the shapes of things. Cutting up a red pepper, and then I happened to have, at the time I had a, I'd gotten some little um, enameled bowls from the Goodwill, so they were like day glow enamel colors. I had a silver and a a bright blue and a red and a yellow and a green. So and then I had a set of wooden bowls. So then I, when I cut up things, I would study which bowl to put that color in. <laughs> but anyway, when you go to the uh, produce section you have a different kind of conversation. First of all, they don't say, buy me, buy me, buy me. They say, hey, how you doing? <laughs> There's a kind of conviviality that's possible in the produce section. <laughs> you could actually have a conversation and there's a kind of mutual kind of interest. I'm I'm doing okay. I'm not sure what to make for dinner. Well, you know, I you know think about it. I could be you know good and you know with those carrots across the way. <laughs> Maybe you could put us together. <laughs> so this is a it's a different kind of thing. And then the thing about you know when you actually have food, of course, is then and you're going to actually cook it might not come out the way it's supposed to and you might not know what to do. And is that okay? Or do you want to stay in the realm where you are capable and competent and successful and skillful and you know exactly what to do you know, to make everything come out the way it should? And how often is that? <laughs> but it's pretty frustrating, isn't it? Just to kind of I mean, how often does your experience in meditation come out the way it's supposed to? And how often do the people you interact with, you know, behave the way they're supposed to? And how do you get everything to be like, like you'd like it to be, where things reflect well on you? <laughs> and everything turns to you and says, thank you. <laughs> you are so special. <laughs> So this is a you know kind of a stressful situation to be in where you're actually going to to be in the kitchen you know and actually do something and actually what do I do with this you know you have a potato or a carrot or a cabbage and <laughs> what am I going to do with this and of course one of the basic things at that point is 
get a recipe. <laughs> and of course, it's very interesting about recipes because most of recipes that you can get in this world are recipes that, like at one point, someone was going to do some cooking shows with me and they said, Ed Brown will teach even inveterate meat eaters how to produce vegetarian masterpieces. <laughs> and I thought, can't I just teach you how to cook a few things? <laughs> Wouldn't it be all right to just cook and then eat something that, you know, kind of okay and, you know, get you through the day? And <laughs> but no, you probably should not go in the kitchen unless you're going to do a masterpiece. <laughs> so all the recipes that you get in all the books are like masterpieces. Almost, you know, like when I was starting to cook, I looked for recipe first. How do you cook spinach? Spinach souffle. <laughs> spinach phyllo pastry. You know, spinach pie. And there's no recipe. So I finally wrote one in one of my books, you know, Tomato Blessings and Radish Teachings, simply spinach. <laughs> you take the spinach, make sure it's clean, <laughs> And there, you know, how do you do that? Is that too hard? <laughs> and then take the spinach and then heat a pan. Put maybe a little butter in the bottom or a little water and then put the spinach in on top. And then put a cover on it. And then every so often, open the cover, turn the spinach over so that the spinach on the bottom that's been cooking will be on the top. And then if you have more spinach that didn't fit in the pot, Add it in before you put that cooked spinach on the top and let it all cook down and you might want a little salt or perhaps a little pepper and have some spinach. <laughs> but mostly, you know, books don't tell you how to do that because they want to tell you something deep and profound and, you know, a masterpiece. That, you know, like, if you do it the way I tell you, you too will be as great as I am. <laughs> you know. So it's a funny kind of thing that we get into around cooking, you know, and that, that makes it hard to just, like, cook and, and, like, eat and, like, enjoy yourself and nourish yourself and other people and actually connect and be with the things of this world and your activity and your breath and your body and food comes out of it and you eat and other people eat and you have a and you sit down together and you visit and um, you know maybe even drink a little wine or you know talk <laughs> nowadays of course and you know we'll get to Dogen I'm sorry but <laughs> <laughs> you know 20 years ago the Wall Street Journal had an article that said, even canned corn stumps modern cooks. <laughs> and it said that the Pillsbury Corporation had taken the directions off of their canned corn, but they got so many calls from consumers wondering what to do, they put the directions back on. And the direction said, put corn in saucepan on heated burner. 
I thought this is, you know, I mean, you might think this is pretty obvious, and I thought this is pretty funny, like some of you think this is funny. And uh, I told this to a friend of mine, and she said, but Ed, I'm like that. Her husband did all the cooking. She was like an artist. And her husband, <laughs> and her husband worked for the IRS. And he would come home from working for the IRS and cook dinner for his artist wife. And she said, but I'm like that. Um, you know, my husband does all the cooking. Do you, do you drain the corn or not? <laughs> You'd want to get it right, wouldn't you? <laughs> and then the accompanying article was, how much will people pay not to cook? And the answer uh, is plenty. So we live in an extremely affluent culture where, you know, food doesn't matter. Food has no value. Corn, now, if you read uh, Michael Pollan's new book, Omnivore's Dilemma, corn, the price of corn keeps going down because it's the only measure is how much you're growing. There's no measure for any kind of quality or you know, it's just how much can you grow? And then it's all pesticides and, you know, genetically modified and and then the corn goes to huge silos and it's all over the ground. Because some of it misses. And he quotes, you know, going back to, you know, an Indian, uh, a Mexican uh, priest who said, you know, in in olden times in Mexico, you know, the people used to say if they saw corn, they would right away pick it up. Because it's divine. It's precious. And they said we wouldn't want... Well, we'll see. <laughs> they said, um, you know, they understood corn is divine. It's precious, even a single grain. And they said, uh, we wouldn't want you, speaking you know, to the divine, to think we didn't care. And we wouldn't want you to say, um, look, he didn't, you know, that we wouldn't want the, the spirit of the corn to say, look, he didn't pick me up. He turned away from me. He went the other way. Strike him down for not caring. You know, this kind of feeling was, and now, you know, we have so much affluence, nothing matters. Uh, but Dogen has, of course, the same idea, you know. Don't waste even a single grain of rice. Don't waste, <coughs> don't waste even a single grain. Treat the food as though it was your eyesight. Treat the food as though it was your body. It is your body. And what do you think is precious if you don't treat something, anything, as precious? So, you know, the idea in Zen is practice treating something as though it's precious. Don't, you know, delay. Don't wait. You know, keep, you know, while you look for something that's precious enough to treat as though it's precious. Get some practice. 
like with when you handle food. <clears throat> so, um, uh, one of the first things that, um, oh, just to finish up about our culture, you know, and the kind of world we're living in. That article in the, in the Wall Street Journal 20 years ago said that more than 25% of American families never eat together. And now it's closer to about 50%. Over the last 20 years, it's gone from, you know, 25% to about 50% of families never eat together. There's a provider in the household who goes out and shops and buys everybody's favorite food that can be put in the oven or microwaved. You don't have to relate to it. You don't have to think about it. Everybody in the family has their own television or video game in their own room. They don't have to talk about what to eat. They don't have any interactions. Everybody has their own entertainment. And, and then everybody in station breaks and in a few moments, you know, gets something to eat. My daughter lived with a father and his daughter while she was going to college in the last few years. And she said, the daughter could not even discard the food packages for the frozen pizzas. She just left them out around the kitchen. And her father said, well, she's so busy and she has, she has school to do. Why would we expect her to actually put anything in the trash barrel? <laughs> so her father actually supported, you know, not only do you have not have to care about the food, you don't have to even concern yourself with the wrappings. This is a you know strange world, and it, I'm going to get to Dogen now. But just to finish up on that, you know, is it's called oil. We can afford this um, because oil is as cheap as it is. Otherwise, we might actually have to care. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so one of the first things that Dogen says about cooking, he says, for the, you know, his instructions are to the head cook. Um, and he says um, that those who do, you know, the cooking for the, uh, the yogis or the, you know, the monks, the meditators, the, the monastic community, you know, are chosen carefully. And they need to have, he said, the mind that seeks the way. You know, the, and we say in, you know, the Zen tradition, way-seeking mind, the mind that seeks the way. I used this expression several years ago in a cooking workshop, you know, a week-long workshop, and then a few weeks later, one of the women in the retreat was a reporter from the Fresno Bee, and she had misheard me all week long, and she said he talked a lot about waste-seeking mind. <laughs> but W-A-Y-dash-seeking, way-seeking mind, the mind that seeks the way. And this is two kinds of seeking the way. One is, how do I do this? What's the way to cook? What's the way to prepare a meal? What's the way to work with carrots or spinach or lettuce or cabbage? What's the way to do this? And what's the way to create a menu um, that will nourish 
and um, he said, you know, and you know, he said sometimes you you should vary the menu enough to provide pleasure for the monks. Of course, nowadays that takes a lot more variance than in the old days. But um, so there's this kind of what is the way, and then there's also, you know, what is the way uh, to be happy, or what is the way to be, you know, one with things. What is the way to be in connection or in harmony? To what is the way to live in peace and harmony? So there's that kind of what is the way as well as the kind of what's the practical what is the way. And there's also, <clears throat> well, we often say things like meditation is, you know, fill in the blank. Meditation is painful. Meditation is boring. Um, Meditation doesn't get you anywhere. Meditation doesn't do anything for me. Somebody said that to me one time. Your talks aren't doing anything for me. <laughs> oh. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you can use this also about cooking. You know, cooking is, cooking takes too much time. Uh, cooking uh, is too hard. You know, I don't have time to cook. Um, and of course, as soon as you say anything like this, you leave out. You know, we we leave out the pivotal information, which might help you seek the way. You know, because if you say I don't have time to cook, what you really mean is I've made a lot of other choices in my life, and I'm also choosing not to cook. And, but I'm going to tell you that I have no choice, given all the other choices I've made, so that I don't have to take responsibility for the fact that I'm not cooking. It's just the circumstances of things, and I'm just a victim of the circumstances of life, and I don't have time to cook. It's not, you know, it's not any reflection on me. I've, a and I've actually chosen to take on all these other responsibilities and commitments and obligations so that, so that I, you know, and then I tell myself I don't have time to cook. And, you know, it's not exactly true. It's like, I'm not interested. I don't, you know, it, I don't choose to look at food and study how to do this in a way that I enjoy and appreciate the process and in a way that I work with food and, you know, cook and provide, you know, food for myself and others. And I choose not to study that. I choose not to study the way to do that. So I choose not to have a way-seeking mind when it comes to food. And then also, as soon as you say cooking is boring or meditation is painful, it's the part you leave out is the way I meditate is boring. The way I cook is too hard. You know, and so that if you if you put in the part of the way I do this is such and such, then you understand like you could study and work on how you're doing something so that you did it in a way that worked better for you. But instead of that, you put it on the object of things. You know, and you make these we make these objective statements about meditation, about cooking, about so and so about me, about you, and we just, and we don't say the way I'm doing this doesn't work for me and I'm going to have to study the way to do this differently. 
And I'm interested in that. I'm interested in studying how to do this differently. <laughs> Today I was up in, in Maine and I was staying with a very old friend of mine from Zen Center in the 60s who taught here at UMass in the anthropology department for 20 or 25 years. <clears throat> and so his wife said to him, I had a dream last night and you did not save me. There were these kind of like half raccoon, half skunk, huge animals, and they were, you know, after me, and <laughs> I was waiting for you to come, but you'd gone off someplace, and you had other things to do, I and mean, you weren't there for me. He said, I'm, I'll work on that. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> When am I supposed to stop here? Oh, 8.30, okay. Oh, well, it's plenty of time. <laughs> mm -mm. So, way-seeking mind and food is precious. You know, food is not just food. Uh, food is also Dharma teaching the Buddha, the Dharma, Sangha. Food is also everything. You know, it's blood and sweat and tears and it's people's work. And it's the blessing, you know, that comes to us, you know, from uh, rain and water. And plants have this capacity to turn dirt and air and water into something we can eat. We can't eat dirt and air and water. Although I do have a friend who <laughs> is thinking that perhaps someday he is going to become one of those breath breatharians. And <laughs> I could go on and on and tell you about my friend, but I'm not going to. <clears throat> but he's been eating just raw food for the last 10 years, you know, because, anyway. <laughs> when I'm with him, I have to say, would you, would you, would it be all right with you if I just had a few bites of cooked food? <laughs> he said, oh yeah, eat what you want, it's okay. And, but he wouldn't let me cook for him. I mean, he wouldn't let me not cook for him. <laughs> <laughs> he had to not cook for himself. <laughs> um, but anyway, this is an interesting point, you know, about what what finally is precious. And again, the idea is to practice treating something as precious. And in this case, treat the food as though it was your eyesight. Don't waste a grain. Don't waste a leaf. And this is, you know, coming from a kind of traditional culture, but it's also coming from, you know, a spiritual tradition. And I think sometimes, you know, like, uh, leftovers. Sometimes we say, oh, well, we can throw that away. And what's the difference between throwing that away and then when you feel like, like you're just a little piece of a little piece of not much of anything, why don't we just throw that away too? And isn't that kind of depressing sometimes that nobody cares? And who's going to do that? Caring. Caring. 
if it's not you, about you, about someone who doesn't feel like much of anything, who's kind of just a little piece of leftover something or another that we could just throw away. (coughs) So where does it end, you know? Where does it start? Where does it end as far as what we care about? And for me, you know, to practice taking care of leftovers is to practice taking care of myself because I don't always feel like I'm a magnificent, wonderful presentation to the world. Sometimes it's kind of hard to show up and be seen because I don't feel like I have that much to offer or I feel scared or small or fragile you know, uh, or I feel sad or discouraged or I'm, I have grief, you know. We all have grief. You know, our, our children get sick and mom and dad die and the world is, you know, in a very painful place and we've all had, you know, pains in our life. So how are you going to take care of that, you know? How are you going to be with things that are, you know, challenging? And you don't know what to do. And there's just being with something. And I'm willing to be with you. You say to the, the rice and the potatoes and the tofu, I'm willing to be here with you. And I value you. I treasure you. I aim to take care of you. I aim to you know, uh, not waste you, not throw you away unnecessarily. I've, you know, this is important to me. I care. So you practice doing this while you cook and while you, you know, work with food, while you handle things. How are you going to do this? And then you can also study, of course, how you do things with your body in a way that works for you and works for the food and gets things done. To me, this is, you know, you're studying this. This is like, how do I do this? What's the way? What's the way to do this in a way that works for me? What kind of uh, equipment do I need? You know, what kind of space do I need? How, what kind of time is important here? And this is all, you know, like it's choice. It's about, you know, it's choosing. And oftentimes, again, you know, we disempower ourselves by saying, I have no choice. And Buddhism, you know, one way you can try describe, you know, freedom, liberation is you have choice. There's no such thing of no choice. That's That's an unliberated idea. You know, that's where you don't feel like you have the choice. You don't feel, you don't sense, you know, your liberation, your freedom. Okay. Uh, So I want to talk about um, at least one other aspect of, um, well, I'll give you a quote from uh, Dogen's Instructions to the Cook, uh, which I find useful. I'll give you, I'd like to give you actually two quotes. Um, one is, um, uh, Dogen says, when you, 
uh, prepare food, when you wash rice and prepare vegetables, do it with your own body, using your own eyes. Don't be idle for a moment. Handle each ingredient with sincerity. Don't be careful about some things and careless about other things. You know, treat each thing sincerely. You know, this is to say, you know, meet each thing. And he says, you know, and be with each thing, relate to each thing. And he says, do not give away your opportunity, even if it's just a drop of water in the ocean of merit. Do not give away your opportunity, even if it's a drop of water in the ocean of merit. Do not fail to add even one particle of dirt to the summit of the mountain of wholesome deeds. One particle of dirt. So this is most of our lives. You know, most of the moments of our lives are one drop of water, one particle of dirt. It's not, and it feels like it's not going to amount to much. But what else do we have but this moment and this one drop and this one particle, you know, to handle, to, to be with, to take care of, to relate to. So, um, you know, this is uh, taking meditation instruction and just, you know, applying it to food. And you can, of course, apply it back to meditation. Don't be careless about some things and careful about something else. You know, some things you like to do and then some things you don't. And then he says, and above all, don't complain about the quality or the quantity of ingredients that come into your life. <laughs> Work with the ingredients that are there. <laughs> You know, don't think that you can choose and pick which ingredients are going to show up. And you might think now with all the affluence, like, well, you only are going to have to work with, you're only going to work with the most organic, precious baby. You know, baby this and baby that. And... <laughs> and So you might think like I can, I can just have the best ingredients and, you know, and to work with, and I will never have to. And then if it's not good enough, well, we just throw it away, you know. <laughs> um, and this is um, so the, Dogen's idea is different than this. If the ingredients are poor, work with some poor ingredients. And he says if you are a sincere practitioner of the way. You can make a fine cream soup out of wild grasses. You can make something as delicious, you know, with poor ingredients as somebody can with good ingredients. This is to study the way. This is to, to you know, to treat things as though they're precious. This is to not be careless about some things and careful about others. Just handle the ingredients and see what you can do with them. And, and you know, work to bring out the best in things. Work to bring out the best in yourself, in the food, in others. 
How are you going to do that? And sincerity here is, you know, such a key point because uh, sincerity means, um, you know, the S-I-N is without, like sans in French, and the serre is wax. So it's without wax. And the wax is what traditionally is used if you have a bronze and there's a little crack or a little blemish, you use some wax to fill it in. So wax is the sincerity is without makeup, you know, without hiding you know, and without the idea that you were presenting a perfect image of a magnificent chef to the world, and everybody will say, oh, what a great cook you are. And, you know, I mean, when I was cooking, I figured this out. I mean, this is not complicated, but it does take a little bit of, like, you look inside, or you, you think about it a little bit, you know, because I realized at some point, like, who cares whether people like the food, Right? Oh, I want them to love the food. Because why? Because then they will think, I'm a really good cook. Well, who cares if they think you're a really good cook? Because then they just say, I like that. Would you do that? for? You're only as good as your last meal then. <laughs> and then you're on this perpetual thing to have to outdo yourself and to reprove yourself, you know, to keep proving yourself by your performance. And so you're busy, you know, performing and you're busy hiding who you really are, and then you think like anybody cares about you. No, they just care about your performance. Nobody knows you, but you think like if they love the food, they must love me. I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) And at some point it's like, oh, maybe if enough people loved the food and, you know, loved me, then it would convince me that I could love me. Right? That's the way it works would convince me that I could love me. And then, are you ever going to get enough evidence? (laughs) I don't know about, you know, I mean, I think Buddhism is pretty clear on this point, but, you know, that you're never going to get enough evidence. You're going to just have to go ahead and love yourself. (laughs) And that means go ahead and be sincere and let the blemishes show and stop trying to hide your faults and imperfections and go ahead and cook something and let it be the way it is and make a sincere, you know, as in a careful effort, not being careless about one, some things and careful about others and not giving away your opportunity or failing to place the particle of dirt at the summit of the mountain of wholesome deeds. Just go ahead and place that little particle and, you know, put the little drop of water in the ocean and just go ahead and do that and see how it comes out. And bon appetit. (laughs) So, um, there's this go ahead and be sincere and make a good, thorough, you know, careful effort do the best you can and don't worry about it. You know, there's an expression in Zen, no more worry about not being perfect. You know, you go ahead and cook something and you offer it. This is my offering. And then you kind of hope that people who are eating are like Buddhas. (laughs) (laughs) Or at least like Vipassana practitioners. 
you know, they just bow and receive the food, and then they don't say anything. They just eat. <laughs> well, um, the other thing that uh, one of the other passages in Dogen's Instructions to the Cook that I is really my favorite uh, passage. Uh, he says, "Let your heart go out and abide in things. Let things come." and abide in your heart. So in some ways this is really key, um, and this is the opposite, you see, to happiness is never having to relate to anything. This is that your well-being, your realization, your awakening are in having things come and abide in your heart, having your heart return and abide in things. Things come and you let things into your heart and you let your heart respond. And you grow to, in being able to trust your heart to respond. To know your heart well enough and to sort things out enough that you can let things come into your heart and you let your heart respond to things. And this is, you know, our deep wish or desire rather than I am invulnerable. Nothing can touch me. I don't have to relate to anything because I have enough money. <laughs> or whatever, you know. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, I appreciate that um, sentiment of Dogen's, and for me it's really the key to, um, in many ways, to practice. Let your heart go out and abide in things. Let things, you know, let things come and abide in your heart. Let your heart return and abide in things. You feel this connection or intimacy with things. Things being your breath, your body, the things you see, smell, taste, touch, your thoughts, your feelings, the food, your friends, your family, the world. You're in connection and it's your heart that's connected to things. And you agree to be with things and you agree to be in connection with things, and you take care of that connection. And you study, you know, how to do that. What's the way to be in connection, to live in peace and harmony? So I wish you well with this. Um, to me, it's, you know, one way of talking about what we're all working on. Uh, and of course, um, uh, I agree with Kabir who said, um, you know, the guest is inside you and inside me. The sprout lies hidden within the seed. None of us has gotten very far. Set aside your arrogance then and take a look around inside. The blue sky extends further and further. The daily sense of failure comes to an end. The damage I have done to myself fades away. A million suns come forward with light when I sit firmly in that place. Oh, and um, how about a Hafiz poem? Hafiz said, today, the vegetables would like to be cut by someone singing God's name. How does Hafiz know this top secret information. 
because once we were all potatoes and tomatoes, onions and zucchini. Thank you, blessings. <laughs> so let's see, 8.30. Is there another break now? Oh, the, oh yeah, 8.30, if anybody wants to go, you know, you can, if anybody wants to go, needs to go, would like to leave, you're welcome to make your getaway at this point. <laughs> and we're going to continue for about 20 minutes or so. Uh, at some point here, we'll start a little question and answer period, and then we'll go from there. And then at uh, 8.55 or so, there's going to be tea downstairs. Well, we have a chance now to um, visit some more. Uh, if you have any um, questions or comments, observations... Yes. Um, you talked a lot about things being precious. Treating things as being precious, and it sounds to me sort of like, but not quite the same as sacred. Could you talk about how they're the same or how they're different? Mm -hmm. Could you repeat the question? Okay. Yeah, the question is, um, is precious the same as, um, or different than sacred? Is that sort of the same as the idea of treating things as though they're sacred? Well, I think of, of um, you know, language uh, as being largely poetic. Uh, so, you know, we're not talking exactly about reality. Um, as though reality was uh, something objective. So, um, for me, um, precious and sacred are pretty interchangeable. Um, and uh, for me, um, a, a great deal of the sense of uh, sacred is, you know, would also be to say, um, treat things as not separate from yourself. Um, treat um, and it's also the idea that um, when you meet one thing, anything, everything is there. You know, uh, and, you know, uh, there's a sonnet by, uh, for instance, Rilke. Uh, the Stephen Mitchell translation is round apple, smooth banana, melon, gooseberry, peach. How all this affluence speaks, death and life in the mouth. It's a little surprise there. But, you know, as soon as you're uh, connected or aware of anything, life is there, death is there, happiness is there, sorrow is there. Everything is there, and yet we're trying to only experience part of that and somehow not have to meet the other part. And that's part of why we... Um, are sometimes sort of not particularly meeting anything, and where we have the idea that happiness would be just don't <laughs> don't take a chance and meet anything. <laughs> so yes, um, and uh, by the way, and then Rilke goes on and he says um, this. Um, 
I sense, observe it in a child's transparent features while he tastes. This comes from far away. What miracle is happening in your mouth while you eat? Instead of words, discoveries flow out of the flesh of the fruit, astonished to be free. Dare to say what apple truly is. And here again, you know, like, what is it? This sweetness that feels thick, dark, dense at first, then exquisitely lifted in your taste, grows clarified, awake, luminous, double-meaninged, sunny, earthy, real. Oh, knowledge, pleasure, joy, immense. That's something about actually, you know, experiencing something closely, intimately, everything is there. Life is there, death is there. And you could also then turn it a little bit and say, you know, the sacred is there. And, and the, um, whatever the opposite of sacred is, you know. Everything is there. And uh, so partly, you know, we're studying how to be with everything. And I kind of, you know, over the years, I, I study and I try to find language that, from, that I can relate to. So, you know, and I would certainly encourage you to do the same thing then. Um, if you relate to, you know, the language of precious, sometimes I go like, precious, that sounds like, you know, doesn't sound good. It sounds like, oh, everything is just too precious. <laughs> you know, like... So sometimes I like, you know, like, well, let's, yeah, let's treat it as though it's sacred. And that was the feeling of the, that quote, for instance, of the, you know, the, and I d just, you know, did a rendering of it, and not specifically, but the idea of the, in, you know, Mexico, cultural imperative to take care of each grain, as though it is a sacred, as though it is from the divine, a piece of the divine, you know, that is like a gift to us. So you take care of the gift. So there's another word, you know, gift. So you, you study and find, you know, the language that, you know, for you helps awaken your way-seeking mind or helps you find your way or, you know, move forward or, you know, be, you know whatever your kind of sensibility is. Start with that. I'm in charge. <laughs> I don't, um, I've, um, you know, I, I started out thinking that, you know, I'm in charge. And then uh, over the years, I've come around more to like, um, you know, how... If you're actually going to be a cook, finally, you know, the idea is that uh, at some point that becomes how do you encourage others to cook? And, and then how do you encourage others to encourage others to cook? And so um, it's become much more interesting to me not to demonstrate to the world you know, what a good cook I am, but to encourage others to cook. 
and to offer what they have to offer. You know, it's like we all have gifts, so you share your, you know, you use your gift and you share your gift with, with others. Um, so um, as soon as you're in a group, um, well, for one thing, you know, um, by the way, you know, Suzuki Rishi said, when you cook, you're not just working on food, you're working on yourself and you're working on other people, which is all the more the case with when you're working with people in cooking. And then, so you're studying, you know, how to work with people and how to make it work for, you know, for me, I'm studying how to work with people, how to make it work for everyone. And so, um, uh, you know, there's certain, uh, depending on the situation, there's, you know, men, there's, me there's meetings or, you know, some kind of sensibility of taking turns being in charge or um, different people doing different dishes or, you know, having, you know, some agreeing on some plan and, um, you know, structuring it in some way that, you know, various people get an opportunity to do various things. And, um, but uh, anybody who's cooked, like with the groups of people, you know that the food takes care of itself. The people are the problem. <laughs> so um, it's not going to work. But, you know, you do what you, again, you know, you're going to treat things sincerely. Do your best to take care of the situation, to make it work, to bring out the best in the people, to bring out the best in yourself and the ingredients, the people. So you're inviting, um, you know, people to come forward. Not everybody wants to, but you give them an invitation. Yes. Could you hear that one? Um, that was the question of how, how do you work, approach or work with people who see cooking as a waste of time? And, um, you know, it depends on, um, like anything with people, um, you know, partly this is your relationship with people and um, uh, how much you care about them. And you're studying... Um, uh, I tend to think about you're studying, um, you, you want to study somebody very carefully. So like you study somebody very carefully so that you know them. You know, and sometimes the person that you're working with is like your teacher and sometimes the person you're working with is like your student. And you want them to be both your teacher and your student. You know, so you want to be able to study and know something about them. What do they care about? What is important to them? And, you know, what upsets them? What, you know, and so you study something carefully enough so that you, 
finally find, you know, the little place to come in there. And you try out a number of things every time. And you also want to have your relationship be bigger than the problem. So fundamental is your relationship. And then an aspect of that is they don't like to cook. But if you say, like, my relationship with this person depends on, you know, I'm going to get them to cook. (laughs) 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 Then you can easily have, you know, some um, sticky some stickiness there. So you're studying, you study someone carefully. This is true with you, too. You know, sometimes you're someone who doesn't feel like doing something. What do you do with this guy? (laughs) 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 And uh, for me, sometimes, you know, you, you join the opposition. I've been trying and trying to get you to do this. I give up. I'm going to, all right, I'm going to do what you want. Let, show me what you do. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so you want to have that kind of relationship where you can you know, play with somebody and uh, do various things. One of your, this also reminds me of one of the, um, you know, Suzuki Roshi was someone who actually said at various points, I don't like food trips. I like work trips. <laughs> you know, um, and uh, when we started out at Sen Center in the 60s, you know, we did everything ourselves. We built the buildings and we dug the septic tanks by hand. And we did everything, almost everything. Um, so he said, I like work trips. I don't like food trips. And there's a story of one time. Uh, he and the student were in town, and the student had become a very serious vegetarian. And he was going to eat, you know, just the right things, and he wasn't going to eat any meat. And and I think he was actually probably at some point telling Suzuki Roshi, like, I'm just this and that. And I'm <laughs> so, so then they, um, it came time for lunch there on this trip. Tassar is like two, mile, uh, two hours, you know, from Carmel. You know, fourteen mile dirt road, and then you know another hour, and so it um, it came time for lunch. So they were my my uh, this student who I knew, you know, he was um, looking for a good place to eat, and he said, "Why don't we eat there?" And Suzuki said, "How about over there?" And it was a burger joint. <laughs> 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 so um, this student looked at very carefully at the menu and finally decided to order, that he could order a grilled cheese sandwich. So he ordered the grilled cheese sandwich, and Suzuki Rishi said, I'll have a hamburger double meat, please. <laughs> <laughs> so then the food came, and they started eating, and Suzuki Rishi said, how's your sandwich? And the student said, it's, it's good, it's great. And Suzuki Rishi said, I don't like mine, let's switch. <laughs> And he grabbed the, you know, grilled cheese and pushed his burger over there. <laughs> so there's a, there's some sense of, you know, you, in order to do anything with anybody, you know, you you study, you know, and you become friends. You want to be friends. How do how you work with somebody? 
and sometimes you do what they're doing, and then sometimes you say, well, you know, like, you know, so there's a kind of give and take, and, you know, but you don't do that with everybody. So that's why I say it depends on, is this of interest to you to cultivate a long-term relationship with this person? I mean, if it's your parents or your kids or your brother or your sister, you know, you you spend time with them and you do stuff and and then you, you kind of bring things up here and there and you see if there's some way to to do this, you know, and to share what's irrelevant or of concern with you, with somebody else. But you always want to, you know, put it in the context of freedom. I, you're not telling them what to do or what they have to do. You know, you're giving them something else that they could choose to do if they chose to do it. <laughs> Otherwise, you're going to meet a lot of resistance. What else? Yes. <laughs> Excuse me, <laughs> chuckling. <laughs> well, that's just that um, I was, it was actually reminding me of, you know, the way that Thich Nhat Hanh says, um, uh, why don't you practice smiling? And when he first said this at Zen Center, of course, this was 1983, and we were used to practicing Japanese Zen, and you do not smile. And people would say, Suppose I don't feel like smiling. <laughs> and um, so, um, and he'd say, well, you know, you could still have a slight smile for someone who doesn't feel like smiling, couldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I've mentioned this over the years, and then, you know, because I, it's one of my practices. From time to time, I practice smiling. And, you know, this is a half smile, not a television camera smile. And, you know, it's a slight smile. So then, um, you know, sometimes at retreats I have women come up to me, and this is where it relates to your saying, I've you know, been a mother and a wife and I've cooked for these people. And, you know, I've had women come up to me and say, you know, Ed, I have practiced smiling my whole life for you men, and I'm tired of it. <laughs> so cooking is sort of the, you know, could be in that same sort of genre of, you know, I've done this all my life, you know. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. Me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, another story um, that you reminded me of is, uh, are you familiar, you know, with Marshall Rosenberg who teaches uh, nonviolent communication? Nonviolent communication, and he's... He spends most of the year going around the world and teaching. He's doing um, uh, some kind of nine-day retreat coming up in Montreal. Um, but he often is in, you know, he would certainly be in the Boston area from time to time. He's out in California in the Bay Area once or twice a year for, you know, several days and does these workshops on nonviolent communication. And there's, there's four basic parts, you know, to learn how to say things without evaluating you know, to do observations instead of evaluations. 
not like you don't respect me. It's like, what did you say? What did the person say? What did they do? As opposed to, you don't treat me right. It doesn't give any information. There's no observation there. It's just a kind of judgment. So is it possible to say something about what you observed? And the second is something about what you feel. What do you feel? And he connects feelings with your needs. And then the last part is making requests rather than demands. You know, that you can, I would, I'm wondering if you would be willing to, you know. And um, one of his points is like related to what I was saying earlier. One of his points is there's no such thing as have to. And he says uh, one of his stories, and if you go to his workshops after a while, you've heard a lot of his stories. (laughs) If you kept coming to my lectures, you know, you'd hear a lot of my same stories too. Um, but, you know, at one of his workshops, a woman said, there is two, there are two some things you have to. And he said, like what? And, he said, and she said, well, you have to cook. And he said, I don't, I don't think so. Why don't you go home and just put a note on the refrigerator? I'm taking a few days off and help yourself to whatever's here. And, you know, and you don't have to cook, you know. So um, a few um, weeks or months later, he was back in that area and this big, tall, um, and Marshall's, you know, somewhere around my height and not so sturdy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so this big um, man looks down at Marshall and says, are you the one who told my mother she didn't need to cook? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, uh, and he says, well, you always say sir in those situations. <laughs> Well, yes, sir, I believe that was me. <laughs> and, um, and then, and then the, the fellow said, well, I want to thank you. <laughs> and he said, because, you know, my mom is so much easier to live with now that she's not, you know, being such a martyr about cooking all the time. I mean, it just used to be terrible. I mean, the emotion in the house was just so intense. It was so hard to live with, and it's so much more relaxing now. <laughs> oh. yeah. Well, it's about um, 8.55, so um, apparently we have... Yes? Okay, one last... Oh, yeah, the one with the little baby? Yeah. She's 33 now. Thank you. Oh, that's a poem, a uh, Kabir poem. It's the beginning of a... Kabir poem, it's in a book um, of, um, it's called the Kabir Book. It's versions of Kabir by Robert Bly. Versions uh, by Robert Bly. Um, yeah, there's some, there's some nice poems in there. Like, um, another one I like is the, um, 
Don't go outside your body looking for flowers, my friend. Don't bother with that excursion. Inside your body there are flowers, and every flower has a thousand petals. Won't that do for a place to sit? (laughs) Uh, Sitting there you'll have a glimpse of beauty uh, before gardens and after gardens, inside the body and out. Simple poem. Well, I enjoy, I'd like to, uh, if you would be willing to, uh, join me in chanting the syllable ho for a minute or so. Um, it's a, ho is the Japanese word for dharma, but it's just, a, you know, it's very similar to, uh, once you get past the original part, you just, it's just like, oh. And, um, but I think of it as a kind of universal term because it's also the word, it's Japanese for dharma, but it's also the, what Santa Claus repeats three times. And, <laughs> It's used in a number of languages in a number of ways. Um, but I like to <coughs> chant Ho and use it as an opportunity to turn over or share the merit and blessing of our practice together and of the evening, uh, you know, and extend that, our prayers and blessings to all beings, the merit of our practice, um, out into the world. And um, as we chant, it's a, also a time when, you know, the sound uh, washes through each of us, so it's a way to share our hearts with one another. And then to share our, send our prayers and blessings out into the world. And if you have anybody in particular in mind that you would like to share with uh, the, your prayers with, then you can bring them to mind. Um, you know, family or friends, someone who's sick, or um, and you know, consciousness can go anywhere. So it doesn't matter if the person is alive or dead. Uh, and we can send out our prayers and blessings, and you know or to all beings, or to, you know, government leaders, however you want to use this. (laughs) So, um, I'll hit the bell to begin, and then we'll chant, and then we can um, chant ho, and we'll go for about a minute or so, and then I'll hit the bell to end. So, um, you know, let the sound wash through you, and then enter into the sound, whatever pitch or tone, you know, works for you, and good full energy, and then you'll hear some, you know, wonderful waves of sound. Okay, you ready? for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.